All right, so my name is Bruce Houghton, and um, I publish a blog called Hypot that's about music and technology, and the wonderful people at A2IM have asked me to interview Richard James Burgess from A2IM, which is the American Association of Independent Music. So if you're at all interested about independent labels and the music industry in general, we've got a gentleman here that um, has a lot that he can share with us. And we'll there will be time at the end for questions, uh, so if you can kind of hold them till then, that'd be great. I'll make sure there's plenty of time. And you um, so, Richard James Burgess, as I said, is the CEO of A2IM, the American Association of Independent Music, and he began his career, um, well, actually, you, you were a student at Berkeley, I didn't realize that until just a second ago, and that was in the early 70s? It was, 72, but I actually began my career before that. I sort of went back to school because I realized I wasn't as good as I had thought. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a good thing to learn when you're young. Um, so, and after Berkeley, um, you were in a band that was signed to a major label, is that correct? Yeah, actually I was in, a, you know, I started out just playing in rock bands and um, I was in a band that was signed to EMI in New Zealand. I grew up in New Zealand, although I was born in England. And then I went to Berkeley and actually they say about Berkeley, if you finish your degree, you're probably not that good. So I didn't finish my degree, I have to say. But, um, I, you know, what happened was I got offered a deal, and that happens a lot when you're at Berkeley. You either get offered a record deal or you get picked up by a band. And um, so I got offered a deal with Warners. I went back to England to, um, to consummate that deal. Various things happened. It fell apart. And then I went through a series of what turned out to, in the end, be six major label deals. <laughs> six major label deals? Six major With the same band, or? No, um, no, I had two, I, I had, the EMI deal was with a band in New Zealand, um, and that was very successful. Then I had, uh, I was signed to Epic and Polydor with the same band in England. Uh, Warners was a different band, and then it went to RCA, different band. Had some, quite a lot of success with that band. And then I went solo and did a deal with Capital in the 80s, so <laughs> it's like, <laughs> So, so obviously determination is, is the key to your success. Persistence is absolutely essential. Polite persistence. <laughs> and, then I, and then I understand you went on to, um, to produce. Yeah, and, and during that period I was a studio musician. I mean, that's really, uh, it started out with me being a studio musician in New Zealand. That's actually all I ever wanted to do. Um, and I loved being a studio musician. It was kind of the golden era of being a studio musician because all the musicians were in the studio at the same time. You know, you'd, you'd, the downbeat would happen at 10, and you'd, by 1 o'clock, you'd walk out with four finished masters. It was really amazing. And gradually through the 70s, it got less and less like that. When disco came in, it was more like me with a click track. And, um, and then I got more and more interested in producing. And, and if I remember correctly, it was in a genre that they credit you with naming new, the New Romantics? Right. Well, it was two things, actually. Funnily enough, we made a record in... We made the record in 78, but it came out in 80, and we, we named this it... Is this your record or this? This was my record. It was a band called Landscape. You can find it on YouTube, and um, it's called European Man. On and YouTube, not on iTunes, so you're not getting paid. And right now, no, but... We'll, we'll I, get into that later. I got my rights back, actually, so I, I'm about to. But, um, yeah, it's, um, we, we actually we gave it the catalog number, EDM1, and on the back of it we said, EDM, electronic dance music, computer programmed to perfection for your listening pleasure. And this, it turns out, was 
five or six years before anyone started using the term EDM. So I don't know if we were influential or if we were just like early. You didn't trademark that, obviously. Well, of course not, no. <laughs> and, and as a producer, I, Spandau Ballet, Adamant. Right, uh, yeah. So I, I, I sort of tripped over the new romantic scene. A friend of mine who I taught to play drums um, called me one night and said, you've got to come and see my club in London. It turned out to be the Blitz. I walked in and Spandau Ballet played that night and I wound up producing them and then I, I actually, yeah, as you say, I, I allegedly came up with the name Neuromantic. Uh, so I was very associated with that. And that came out of a lot of interest in synthesizers. Although my instrument is drums, and um, I'm actually quite acoustic as a musician, but I, I, I also do a lot of elect electronics as well. And, and I saw you did some production with, with, I mean, it was very diverse. Melba Moore, America, some, so not just, uh, not just synth pop, if you will. No, I did some early house music. Uh, I did Shriekback, alternative band. I did some ambient stuff in the early 90s. So I have incredibly eclectic taste, you know, and I never listen to the same thing twice. Even now on Spotify, I only, I listen to New Music Friday and Discover Weekly and all the, the new things. And uh, I also saw there was some work after that, or maybe in, in the same period, in sort of music tech at the time, which um, was mostly, mostly synthesizers and samples. And yeah, I, I actually um, came up, well, there's two things. One is um, I got frustrated in the 70s when we were touring with uh, using acoustic drums live because everything would sound great until you pushed up the mics and suddenly everything you know, went to hell and um, with all, all the noises from the stage going through the mic. So I started working on the idea of electronic drums, and that turned into the Simmons SDS-5, which, you know, this is way before your time, but they're these hexagonal pads. They're sort of like space-age pads, and they were the first electronic drums, actually. It was before Linda. If Lindrum. you look at an old Thomas Dolby video, you'll get the idea. Well, Tom was a good friend, and I was supposed to play on that album, but I was busy with another album that was really successful. But yeah, I mean, that, 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 those were the drums, so that was and fun. You, and you've written a couple books and, uh, about that, if I'm right? I have. I have um, my first book was called The Art of Record Production, and then the publisher changed the name to The Art of Music Production, which was basically the same book, but I, I, um, I, I updated it. You know, music production has changed so much since 97 when the first one was published, so about every four or five years I, I update it. And... Um, and then I moved it to Oxford University Press eventually uh, because it was getting used in schools a lot. Uh, and, and then I wrote a subsequent book called The History of Music Production, which was really fascinating to write. I kind of want, it started out as a chapter for the art of music production, and then when it got to about 300 pages, Oxford said, uh, it's not a chapter. <laughs> and, and after that, a, a music manager both in the UK and here, and I saw in the U.S., you managed the band with the best name ever, Jimmy's Chicken Shack. Right. And what a lot of people don't know, that's named after a, uh, uh, a chicken place and a bar in Harlem where Charlie Parker used to wash dishes when he was banned from uh, playing by the, uh, the cabaret law people. And shortly thereafter, Smithsonian Folkways came calling? Yeah, that was, it was an out-of-the-blue thing. I was managing, and I was very happy managing. Um, I loved it, but... Um, I, I got this opportunity to go to Smithsonian Folkways, and I actually wound up taking like a 75% pay cut to go there. But the reason I went there was because I had, when I was a kid, I'd, I'd bought those records, the original Folkways records. So for those that don't know, Smithsonian Folkways is? Uh, well, it's the record label of the Smithsonian Institution, and it was originally a label called Folkways Records that started in 1948 by a guy called Mo Ash, who was 
you know, I mean, there were plenty of independent labels around then, but he was a very interesting guy. He actually worked a long tail business model. It was very well thought out what he did. He, he has some interesting quotes, like he says things like, you know, you wouldn't take the letter P out of the alphabet just because you don't use it very much, and uh, meaning that he never deleted anything. So Smithsonian Folkways never deletes anything, which I think is a beautiful concept, especially now we're in the digital era, but he did it in the physical era, which is remarkable. But he also said, I'd sooner sell two copies of 3,000 recordings than I would sell 6,000 copies of one recording. And that's an interesting concept for a label, too. Smithsonian Folkways is in many ways sort of a a museum-like repository of American music in, in some ways? Uh, it, it, it has that aspect to it. I mean, of course, it's, part of the, it's a full part of the Smithsonian, although it operates as an independent label. It still has to make its own money. It's not subsidized by the institution. But um, it, 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 it also records new, we, you know, I, I recorded some stuff in Venezuela, and we, were, we did a ton of stuff in South America, Central America, because you know we're trying to fill in all the gaps. But of course, in the world of ethnomusicology, there's always new music coming up, you know, so there's so much you don't have. You can never keep up. And it was in that position at Smithsonian Folkways that you first became involved in A2IM, is that? Right. Well, in the early 2000s, uh, A2IM was formed by a group of uh, uh, independent labels, many of whom are still on our board, and, uh, and I think pretty much all of whom are still members. And the reason was because we'd just gone through the digital disruption with Napster and everything, and uh, you know, and Apple had just started up, iTunes had just started up. So people were trying to figure out how this digital thing works. And so to have an organization that could kind of be a central gathering point for everybody, it was a community, it was a network, and it was an information collection and dissemination entity. So I joined pretty early on um, as Smithsonian Folkways Recordings, and I, I really loved it. It was really something. I went up on the board in the end. So, so I don't mess up. Are you telling me we only have 20 minutes left? Wow, I did this all wrong. So <laughs> we're going to go through. I'm sorry. I thought we had much more time than that. So basically what I want to do then now is kind of a lightning round, and then we'll still make sure there's time for questions about issues that A2IM uh, that are facing independent labels, yeah. if that's okay. Yeah. So would you say that independent labels are undergoing the same kind of resurgence that the majors are? I think probably slightly better. I mean, we currently have uh, across the board a 35.1% market share by ownership. Um, and in, uh, by streaming, it, it may be higher. We think it's around 38, 39%. Um, it's, streaming works well for independent labels. What works badly for independent labels is a very narrow distribution pipeline. So retail stores were bad because we could never get all of our stuff in retail stores. And uh, radio is not so good because it's very limited. But Spotify, Apple, uh, you know, the, these outlets are amazing because you can get everything up there. Now, not everybody's going to listen to everything, but it's up there, and the opportunity is to be... Is so streaming has leveled the playing field in terms of distribution and access. And it, it has definitely, yes. It's contributed to a leveling of the playing field, for sure. And Merlin came out with a, uh, which is this international independent trade group, uh, that a figure that uh, thir roughly 35% of labels or 30% of labels were making 75% of their income from streaming. Yeah. Would you say that most of your labels are making more than half of their income from streaming? Yes, I believe so. There are still some labels and some genres that do the majority through physical. And it's funny, like, like country music, for instance, is still a heavy physical uh, genre. Uh, jazz, likewise. 
but that's going to shift. You know, it's just it, it's partly, I think, due to the fact that uh, the services tend to focus on certain genres, and partly due to the demographic of the consumers. That, that was true with Folkways. We were kind of a little bit slow moving because our demographic skewed older. Um, so Troy Carter yesterday said, uh, you know, in the streaming world, the best song wins. Do, do indies in general feel that they have equal access to Spotify and, and, and those kinds of services in the way that they want to? We do. I mean, I, you know, I had several, many meetings with Troy last year. I really like Troy. I think he's a, a wonderful guy. And, uh, and we also met with Rob Harvey there. And they uh, went to the trouble of installing a whole independent um, uh, unit there, which, funnily enough, they stole one of my employees, Jem Massey, who's running that now. But, so we're, but actually, we're pretty happy about that, because we know Jem really well, and we like her. So um, yeah, I think, I think they're making a real effort. And I think you know, Spotify is slightly different than some of the other services, because they're very algorithmically oriented. And, and that, I think, is what Troy was talking about. I actually missed Troy's talk, but you know, it, once something's up there, it's entirely dependent on how many likes it gets, how many replays it gets, how many playlists it gets added to, and so on and so forth. That generally works well for the indies. So if, if a record's reacting, Spotify rewards it, if you will. Exactly in, right. In an yeah. It's way. not dependent on going in there and you know, having some fast-talking guy tell you that this is a priority for their label and so on. But as much as streaming has leveled the playing field, there are issues across platforms, not at all to pick on Spotify, of, of um, money, of payment, of, of fair payment for, for play, if you will. Right. I mean, generally, we're pretty happy with Spotify. We're gen in general, we're pretty happy with subscription services. Um, and we don't mind the ads supported as long as they are an acquisition funnel, because we recognize that you know, when you're young and you're broke, as I was, once, um, you know, you, you, that's often times when you've got the most time and the most enthusiasm for music, and it's good to kind of, you know, pull pull people in at that point. But at the same time, if it just becomes a sort of a free spigot um, for music, that's not good for labels overall. It's not good for artists. And you know, if we don't, we, it's easy to forget that everything stems from the artist. If an artist can't survive, if they can't pay their bills, if they can't eat, if they can't have a decent life, then they might choose to go into some other field. Creative people will do that. So specifically, um, YouTube would be more of an issue because it doesn't have as much of a paid component? We had a good meeting the other week at South by Southwest with Leo Cohen and the entire team. And, and they brought in um, TJ, I think his name is, who, who's over YouTube Red. And you know they stressed that they are very serious about uh, YouTube Red, which is a subscription service. I mean, honestly, if they can transition their service onto subscription, we will be extremely happy. And again, the free side, if it's a true acquisition funnel, uh, that might work for us. But uh, right now, there's too much unmonetized music on YouTube. And it's not just YouTube. There are other entities out there as well. Um, but there's too much unmonetized music. I mean, the US is, is not too bad, because the ad-supported stuff has uh, uh, you know, it's quite a high percentage of the music that's played. I think it's something like 80%. Um, having said that, if you compare apples to apples, the ad-supported side of YouTube doesn't pay as well as the ad-supported side of Spotify by um, a significant factor, like somewhere between six and eight times, some people think 20 times. Um, but in some countries, 90% uh, of the content is unmonetized, and that's a real problem. So the pro And the problem, 
um, we were talking earlier with YouTube for, for indies is not just the rate at which they're paying, but the amount of unmonetized music, unauthorized music. Yeah, you really can't separate the two. I mean, because, you know, it's substitutional. If somebody's listening to something for free somewhere, then they're not listening to something that is paying. I mean, you know, I, I, I always want to get this in perspective. You know, $9.99 a month. I mean, compare that to a Netflix subscription. And I guarantee everybody in this room, and this is a rash statement, by the way, um, but I would imagine everybody in this room probably listens to more music than they do watch movies on Netflix, and yet will pay half as much again or more for Netflix than we will for music, which seems very screwy to me. And I have to say, in the physical days, yeah, I would walk out of Tower Records regularly with two or $300 worth of CDs. Now, maybe I'm a heavy user, I'm sure I am, but nonetheless, I, I, I pay, you know, whatever it is, 120 bucks a year for Spotify and I get all the music I want. It's much less than I used to spend on music. So, I can, 10 bucks a month is an incredible deal for all the music you can eat. So, on a um, legislative level, and I'm putting in a bucket, you know, Copyright Board, uh, Congress, et cetera, in one bucket. Um, there are some issues that are, are pressing for indies. One of them, as it relates to, to YouTube and, and other services like it, is um, uh, Take Down, Stay Down, for yeah. example. So talk about that for a sec. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the, one of the biggest problems is we don't really have control over our music at this point. You know, so stuff gets up there either by UGC or whatever, and it can really mess up a, a marketing campaign. But also, I mean, again, it's substitutional. So if you're getting paid a lot over here, but it's free there, then that's diminishing your, your, your overall revenues. And, uh, you know, I mean, we've watched revenues go down. I mean, just, just to put it in perspective again, uh, in 2000, based on adjusted revenues, that's like dollar for dollar to, to, to today, um, the industry was bringing in $19.27 billion. Today, it's $7.5 So we're almost down to a third of what we were in 2000. We should be much higher than we were in 2000. We should be at $25 billion or $30 billion at this point. But So we're sort of trying to claw our way back up. So, you know, you can argue about the nuts and bolts of substitution and everything, but it's pretty obvious that something happened between 2000 and now, and we know it's digital. So. And you kind of have to look at, you know, the unmonetized uh, uses of music, I think. And, and lest, that, lest we not just pick on uh, new technology companies, the, one of the legacy players, broadcast radio, is, is an issue as well. Well, I, you know, I refer to broadcast radio as the original streaming service. And, that, you know, radio started in, two th in the year 1920, so we're three years away from their, from their uh, 100th anniversary. And, you know, frankly, I think it's a century of shame in this country because uh, they just don't pay anything. And they paid zero dollars to musicians, labels, singers, and artists in 97 years. And the worst part of it is, most other countries in the world pay musicians, artists, singers, labels uh, every time they play it. So for instance, I, if I get a record played on Radio 1 in England, and let's say I didn't write the song, because that's a separate issue, um, you know, I can get as 60 pounds on, or more every time they play that record. Here, I get zero. So, uh, and we're in the company of China, Iran, and North Korea, which I don't think is a company that, you know, the US of A wants to be in. And there's legislation now that's been filed by bipartisan legislation that might take care of that? It's called the Fair Play, Fair Pay Act, but frankly, this is, I think, the 25th or 26th attempt to get this right since 1925. 
And, um, you know, Frank Sinatra famously did, I believe Bruce Springsteen did, uh, many, many attempts to get this. And, you know, but radio is a very powerful lobby and it's been extremely difficult to get it. I think that we might have a chance because they are now about to enter um, a disruption cycle similar to the one we entered in 1999. Um, earlier, or yesterday, I saw you on a panel about high-res music, um, and, and that's an issue in a positive way for, for independent labels. It's, a, it's an opportunity. It's, it's interesting. This has been an issue on the table for many, uh, many years now, and I was on the, the P&E wing uh, steering committee, which is the producer and engineer wing of the Recording Academy, for quite some time, and uh, we talked about it a lot back then. But it's it's almost more important today than it was back then, because back then we were saying, well, you know, we want high res as compared to CD. But with the CD going away, I mean, I don't even own a CD player at this point. I, mean, I bet many people in this room don't own CD players either. Um, what you're really comparing high res to now is, at best, 320 kilobits, or it might be 256 or 128, depending on whether you're on free services or, or paid services. So, you know, if you, even if you don't think there's a big difference between 96K 24-bit audio and 44116-bit audio, there's a huge difference between 9624 and 320 or 256 or 128. So, uh, you know, what we're trying to get to, uh, what the high-res community is trying to get to is a place where what you hear through your headphones or in your house is as close as possible to what the artist and the producer heard in the first place. And having spent much of my life in studios, I gotta tell you, it's a different experience when you hear that kind of level of audio. It's like the difference between HD or 4K TV and standard TV. It's, it's, it... But the opportunity is also for um, monetization, for, uh, for finding a percentage of people that are willing to pay $20 a month instead of $10 a month. Well, it? that that's a theory right now. I mean, obviously, Tidal charges double for their wave level, um, you know, CD quality, 44116, and apparently they're also doing high-res, which is above 44116, it's 24-bit, and it's got to be 48K or higher, I think, is the guideline. Uh, I don't believe they're charging additional for that, which is interesting. So that's a model that exists. Whether that will ultimately be the model, I don't think any of us can say. But it is an interesting concept. Some people are willing to pay more for better quality music. Um, we're going to open up to questions in just a second. Um, anything else you think I'm missing? We talked a little bit about um, moral rights, attribution. Well, it, we just filed in the moral rights uh, reply comments on Capitol Hill because attribution has become a problem in our industry. And one of the things I always point out is that our industry is one of the few, if not the only, where we made the shift from analog to digital and we lost information. If you look at books, magazines, newspapers, television, when they made the shift from analog to, to digital, they got more information. So, you, you, know, you, put, you know, I generally buy, I often buy the physical book and the e-book because, you know, I, I write and so I use books as, for research and it's much easier to research in an e-book than it is in a, in a physical book. Um, and likewise with magazines, you know, if you buy a magazine digitally, you get all kinds of additional materials and, and things like that. With music industry, what we did is we lost all our credits, so we don't have any label credits, we have no producer credits, no artist credits, you don't know where the studio was. Uh, maybe a lot of people don't care about this, but I think that the super fans really do care. I care. I, and I know I discovered a lot of music uh, through uh, 
seeing it was the same bass player on a record or seeing it was the same producer. So I think that we're losing a browse slash discovery opportunity by not having credits available. So despite all these um, sort of issues, if you will, we, start, I, we started by saying indie labels are thriving. I guess I'd end by saying, is this a good time to start an indie label, to run an indie label? I think this is the best time. My, my oldest son, who's 28, just started a label. It wasn't at my behest. He just decided to do it. But I think this is a wonderful time. I have a friend who's a venture capitalist, and he was doing some maturity curves recently that he showed me. And they indicated that, this was about a year ago, indicated that we're in the 5%, the fifth or 10, somewhere between 5 and 10% in terms of the potential growth of streaming. So that would say to me that this is a wonderful time to start a label. Uh, you know, we've started to turn up. I mean, everybody's describing it as uh, tentative or fragile, and I think that's a fair description. But my guess is, unless there's some massive shift, that things are going to really start looking good three to five years from now. All right, so I'd like to open up to questions. We've got five minutes left, so, sir. My question is, uh, uh, stand up. There you go. Thank you. My, my question is, uh, is uh, consumption the transaction, uh, and are there any other forms out there that are the transaction? Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question, but you, you're saying is, is consumption con versus sale. Is consumption meaning is streaming the transaction, and oh yeah. Would yeah. you consider anything else out there the transaction? I think consumption is transaction, if that's the question. I mean, that's my argument with radio. And, and whilst that was kind of blurry in the physical world, especially in 99 when we were charging 1899 or 1998 for a CD, you know, the radio could argue, well, it's promotional. You know, we'll play this, we'll play this track on the radio, and people will rush out in droves and buy it. Um, which was true for the limited number. There was some truth in that for the limited number of records that got played on radio. But now, you know, they'll play a track on the radio, and what? You go to Spotify and stream it, and you'll get paid 0 0.0017 of a, of a penny or something. So the stream is the, is the consumption, the use of, the listen, whatever you want to call it, is the transaction as far as I'm concerned. So you would say all consumption, or most consumption, if not all consumption, is in essence a transaction, or should be? I, I think all consumption is a transaction, personally. I mean, it could be a free transaction, but it's a transaction. Other questions? So, given the fact that what's perceived uh, when listening to music is a performance of the song, not the song itself, how does the broadcast radio industry rationalize not paying artists and record labels? I I've been scratching my head at this for quite some time. I, I have been too. I mean, I, I, it took me by surprise because, you know, as a young musician and as a young artist, I wasn't initially living in America, so I just assumed everybody got paid on the radio. And by the way, there was a recent survey that showed that 70% of the population doesn't realize that artists, singers, musicians, and labels don't get paid when the record gets paid. And it's kind of blurry because songwriters do. Now, songwriters don't get such a good deal in the digital domain, but they get a very good deal on radio. 
Um, you know, they rationalize it by promotion, and unfortunately it was our industry that created that paradigm because sometime in the late 40s, Radio was not about music prior to the late 40s, but when television came out, television disrupted the radio industry. They had to find a new model. They moved to, they moved to music. The union had always blocked recorded music from being played on the radio for these exact reasons. But at this point, it just kind of overwhelmed the union and they just went for it. And, uh, and, and then, of course, one label, uh, well, they still exist, I'm not one to say who they were, decided, oh, it's a great idea, we'll send free LPs over and they'll play them and we'll sell more. And it, and it turned out to be true in those days. Um, but of course, that was a slippery slope. And next thing you know, we're paying radio to play records. You know, that was started in the 50s. And um, no, it's crazy. I mean, sometimes our, the, our industry is its own worst enemy, though. But the promotion argument is still alive and well. And there's tons of evidence that it's not true. And, and if you really want to test it, even if it's true for front-line product, and there may be some evidence that in the first few weeks of a, a brand new recording, it's true, think about oldies. So you think about, say, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. They play that record. You know, you hear it on the radio still on all the oldie stations, and, and a majority of stations are oldie stations. Nobody's going to run out and buy that record. Um, but Martha Reeves doesn't get paid. The Vandellas don't get paid. The writers get paid. Aretha Franklin, respect. Artist Redding gets paid because he played, he wrote the track, wrote the song. But Aretha doesn't get paid because she sang on it. And so. Yeah. And up until now, there hasn't been the, let's just say the lobbyists on one side have been more powerful or active than the others. Interestingly enough, we might be in this strange political climate in a place where that might change, but we've all heard that before. So we've got time probably for one more. So it appears that globally courts are um, deciding that Uber and Lyft and other companies aren't, um, aren't providing uh, contractors were actually providing a, a service, a transportation service. With that in mind, do you see a future where a percentage of every Lyft or Uber ride uh, goes to paying a PRO? That's a great question, boy. This question <laughs> because before, they're playing, I've not, not gotten an answer on it. Because know. they're playing music in the Uber? Yeah. That's a really interesting question. I'm going to have to think uh, about it. Can that. I get a cut of it if you make a deal? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, that, that, it's a good point because actually, again, in the UK, for example, but this is true in many, many um, economically developed countries, shall we say, um, you know, if I walk into a dress shop or a clothes shop and they're playing my record or somebody's record, they're paying not only the songwriters and publishers, they're also paying the musicians, singers, artists, and labels. So, you know, it's not an extraordinary thought that we should get paid. I'm going oh, go yeah. to squeeze in one more and then yeah. we'll wrap. Wow. Yeah. I, I, we paid him 10 bucks to say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a2im.org, and uh, um, it's just letter A, number two, letter I, letter M.org. Uh, and uh, all the information is there, and our contact information is there. You can call. I have an incredible team who will take care of you if you want to join. And, and I really, uh, you know, I, I didn't expect to wind up being CEO of the organization. I was just a very enthusiastic member and a very enthusiastic board member, eventually the chairman. And, you know, I loved it so much, I would say I bought the company, but I didn't. <laughs> they just made me CEO. But I know it's a really great organization. I highly recommend it.
And in two weeks, they're doing uh, Indie Week in New York City. So if anybody's nearby, it's a whole week worth of seminars and concerts and those kind of things as well. Uh, info on the same organization, on the same website. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you, thank Bruce. You. Thank you. Oh, and I should plug HypeBot. <laughs> if you don't follow Bruce on HypeBot, you should. It's, it's some amazing stuff there. Gosh, that cost me another 10 bucks. So. <laughs>